Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9 once again. Some of you may remember 1998 and the space exploration that was going on in that time. There was a lot of excitement around a program called the Mars Surveyor. Because there had been a number of attempts to reach Mars with various spacecraft through the years, but uh, so many of them had failed. In fact, it had been since the 70s when the United States launched the Voyager uh, satellites. It had been since the 70s since we had successfully gotten to Mars. And since that time, a number of different uh, spacecraft had failed along the way, primarily due to technical difficulties and And so there was much excitement in 1998 as they launched the Mars Surveyor. Not surprisingly, they had brought together some of the brightest minds in all of America working on this project and a tremendous amount of anticipation because there was so much more, so much better technology in this spacecraft than had been in all of the previous spacecraft combined. So much that was going to be gathered And we were going to be advanced so far in our understanding of this mysterious planet. But unfortunately, the Mars Surveyor would go on to become just another in a long line of failed attempts to reach Mars. Two out of every three spacecraft that go there fail. But this time, it wasn't because of some technical difficulty. It wasn't a limitation in the technology. This was simple human error. In fact, just a simple error in calculation. Because in the planning phase for the program, the trajectory for the approach and the landing of the orbiter had been calculated by Jet Propulsion Laboratories in California in metric units. But the onboard computer, which was designed by and programmed by Lockheed Martin, had been programmed using imperial units. So when the spacecraft attempted the complicated maneuvers of approach, it either burned up or bounced off of the atmosphere, propelled into the world of space junk. Wrong information, even in the hands of very smart people, it leads to utter failure. That's sort of a interplanetary analogy, if you will for something spiritual that was taking place in the history of Israel, which Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 9. He's telling us about a major miscalculation, a major misunderstanding of information, which has led to a catastrophic failure in their mission. A catastrophic failure in their mission, if you will, to reach God. They were seeking God. In fact, Paul says they were seeking Him zealously. Maybe we might even say sincerely. They were pursuing Him in their minds at least. And in that endeavor, you would have found some of these very sincere speakers and seekers. In fact, Paul says in Romans 10.2, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In that short phrase, Paul summarizes Israel's problem. And not only that, he summarizes the problem of so many other people who might think that they're seeking after God. They might think that they are, they are hungering for God or whatever it might be. 
But in fact, they are in the same kind of, of a vortex that Israel was in. They are seeking him, but they have all of the wrong metrics. They're operating with all the wrong knowledge. Their problem is not effort. Their problem is not zeal. Their problem may not necessarily even be sincerity. It's not that they're not earnest or dedicated or even disciplined in their religion. Paul says Israel had zeal. We know people in other religions have zeal. But the problem isn't zeal. The problem isn't sincerity. The problem isn't any of those things. The problem is knowledge. The problem is the way in which they were measuring their relationship with God. They misunderstood the truth. They had a certain amount of it, but it was misinterpreted, we might even say. Or more critically, because their misinterpretation of the truth, they had, we might say, the wrong goal. They were aiming at the wrong target. In that sense, Israel is just a paradigm for so many other people who are pursuing religion but they're pursuing it with the wrong understanding, with miscalculations, we might say. It might be a paradigm for you. If you're here today, if you're streaming and listening to this online or wherever, they might be uh, somebody who represents you, taking the time, making the effort to try to find out more about the Bible, more about God, to try to find answers for your life. And you're putting all these things into your formula, all these calculations. You're hoping to reach some goal. You're trying to find answers for your life. You're trying to study the Bible. You're trying to do the things that you think someone should do to reach God. Or maybe you've been brought up in church and you're just carrying on traditions as you were always taught them. You just need to realize that even in the midst of all that, there are dangers. There are dangers that you end up putting a lot of time and a lot of interest and a lot of zeal and a lot of effort, but you may have some fatal miscalculations in your understanding of what God even wants from you. Calculating by the wrong metric, if you will. And you're set up for a fatal crash and burn. So this is the message that Paul wants people to understand. This is what he wants people to understand who are, who are asking questions about Israel. Why Israel doesn't believe. That was their question in Paul's day. That's what he's been really talking about in Roman, all of Romans 9, 10, and 11. We've talked about that a number of times. He's really grappling with how can these people who were so zealous for God, who had so much interest in God, how can these people have missed him? And just by asking that kind of question, the people who are asking probably demonstrate their, their own shallow understanding. Like so many people have today, they, they have this assumption that if you approach God with sincerity, if you approach religion with sincerity, if you approach whatever you're doing with some sort of genuineness and honesty and zeal or all those other things, they assume that if you approach all of those Things that you are going to necessarily get to the final goal, which is maybe salvation or heaven or whatever it might be. But Paul's warning comes to us by example from Israel that there was a fatal miscalculation in all of their efforts that led to a fatal demise in their spiritual seeking. 
the fatal downfall, the fatal demise of every spiritual seeker is what's demonstrated to us in this passage. And Paul dissects it for us, the fatal flaw in the spiritual seeking of Israel. Just listen to the way he describes it, beginning in chapter 9, verse 30. And we'll go through the first few verses of chapter 10 because the theme carries over across the chapter. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it's written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God to them, uh, to God for them, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Here you have Paul still grappling with this issue of Israel's unbelief, still trying to explain it to his audience. And he's, he's already kind of touched on this uh, throughout the chapter in a number of ways. He's explained that, that in God's promises to work within Israel, he's always had an Israel within Israel. In other words, there's always been a remnant within the bigger scope of the unbelieving nation. And he explains that by way of God's sovereign election. He says, look, God just chooses some people so that within the long history of unbelieving Israel, he's always had some that he's caused to come to himself. But, but he's, still, he's still dealing with the question that some people have in their mind because they read the Old Testament, they had some expectation from the Old Testament that God would work within Israel and they're not, they're not responding or they're not, they're not God's people as they should be. And so he's trying to explain to them why that might be. And, and more than that, he's trying to explain to them why, whenever they're not coming to God, why Gentiles are coming to God. Israel had always been unbelieving. Israel had always had a, a large segment of their population who didn't believe in God, even though there was a godly Remnant. So in that sense, nothing has changed in Paul's day. It's still sort of the same way it always was. But what has changed is that now God is revealing his righteousness among the Gentiles. He's making Gentiles his people. They were the ones who were finding God, along with the remnant of believing Jews. And so, as Paul said in the opening chapter of this letter, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So, so he's, he's proudly proclaiming this gospel, which is powerfully making its way into the lives of all these people, Greeks and Jews, but it raises a lot of questions. A lot of questions. Why? Why are so many Gentiles coming to God? Why are so many Jews still missing it? As I said, it shows the shallow understanding of the questioner who apparently thought still that, that Israel, just simply because they had some system of religion, just simply because they had effort and, 
And uh, because they had structure and because they had zeal within that structure, they apparently thought that that should have meant something. And Paul's clarifying to them what we should all know, which is that even within very sophisticated structures of religion, people still operate with superficial knowledge and they still miss God. Well, Paul dissects all of this within Israel's history and, and how they were seeking after God. And it begins in verse 30 with a question and really our first point, a paradox of spiritual pathways, a paradox of spiritual pathways. He says, what shall we say then? In light of everything he says in chapter 9 and really all the book as a whole, what shall we say to all of these things? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is the righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching it. That's his summary of the whole deal. The Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness attained it. The Jews who did pursue it did not. And so you have this paradox. You have one group who apparently puts in so much effort in seeking God, and then you have one group who seemingly puts in no effort in seeking God. And yet the paradox is that the group who put in no effort, actually found God. While the group who seemingly put in everything they had never found Him, never attained a righteousness. And it really, if you wanted to paraphrase paraphrase the dilemma in our own terms, we would ask, how can someone put so much effort into seeking God and still miss Him? How can somebody put so much effort into seeking God and still miss Him? Well, this is what Paul's talking about that. And his answer is that it's the way in which they pursue it. It's not the effort. It's not the zeal. It's the way in which they pursue it. You can have people who claim to be pursuing God. You can have people who gather in a synagogue. They gather in a church. They can gather by hundreds. They can gather by thousands. They can call it spiritual. They can call it religion. They can call it Christianity. But if the way in which they're going about it is wrong, even if they're going about it with all kinds of sincerity, if the information that they're using is miscalculated, then they will not reach their desired goal. Now you have to understand what Paul's saying here. When he's saying is, uh, or I should say, you have to understand what he's saying and what he's not saying When he's speaking about people pursuing righteousness, he's not suggesting that any of them, whether Gentiles or Jews, were properly pursuing righteousness. He's not suggesting that people were, uh, are sort of naturally born in this state of pursuing the right kind of things and that Israel was pursuing the right kind of things and just frustrated in their efforts to do it. In fact, he's already established back in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So in the real sense, there are no true seekers of God. There are There are people who say that they're seeking after God. There are people who say that they're seeking after salvation or whatever it might be. And Paul even speaks here about Jews who are seeking after righteousness. 
But he's saying all of this not from God's perspective, but from man's perspective. He's saying all this about the way that Jews looked at themselves. They basically viewed themselves as religiously zealous, as sincerely seeking God, as the ones who had all of the corner on the market of the truth. But in fact, they weren't seeking after God. They were self-seeking. They were, we might say, self-righteous. The righteousness they were seeking after was not God's righteousness, it was their own. This is what Paul, in fact, says down in verse 3. They were all seeking, but being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. So both groups, Jews and Gentiles, were not seeking what they needed to be seeking. The problem is that one of them thought that they were. The Jews thought that they were. They were self-deceived. They were wrapped up in the self-deception of self-made religion. He's talking about those who were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They were ignorant of what God's real demands were. And in some cases, it manifests itself in very pious Jewish religion. And in some cases, it manifests itself in at least from the Jews' perspective, impious pagan religion. But they were all in the same boat. They were all in the same boat. He's describing all of this from the standpoint of men viewing themselves as pursuing God. When in fact they were just pursuing themselves. They were just pursuing their own righteousness. But according to the Jews, this is what you have. You have one group who apparently is putting in all the effort. You have one group who's putting in no the effort, none of the effort. And the group, or at least from their perspective, who had none of the effort appears to be the ones finding God. And the problem, Paul says, is that they were pursuing it the wrong way. Or as he says here in verse 31, they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. They pursued God Or when they pursued God, they pursued Him through keeping a law. They pursued Him through attempting to follow certain rules, certain stipulations, certain laws that they believed would please God. And the point is, it would never, ever lead them to God. In fact, as a nation, for years, for centuries, we might even say for a millennia, Israel had done this. All their seeking, all their pursuing, all their zeal had led to nothing. Well, why is that? Well, that's Paul's second question and his second point in this, um, in this little dissecting of Israel's dilemma. In verse 32, he gives us the prediction of their stumbling. He asks the second question there in verse 32. Why is it? Why have they failed? Why did they not do it? Why were they... Why were they the ones who were not finding God? And then he he answers it by summarizing the issue. The problem is, the same problem Israel had always had, that they were pursuing their righteousness the wrong way. They were using the wrong metrics. 
Paul says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, by works. God was calculating by faith. They were calculating by works. And they would never reach God that way. And Paul explains all this by quoting from the book of Isaiah. In fact, he he takes two passages from Isaiah and weaves them together, both of them around the issue of the imagery of a stone. One of them from Isaiah 8, the other from Isaiah 28. Both of them are warnings, are passages of judgment against Israel for their utter failure to believe in God. And he says, this is just like it was said in the Old Testament, as it was written in the Old Testament. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He weaves these two passages together. One of them from Isaiah chapter 8, where God is is giving a prophecy through Isaiah, a prophecy of rebuke to Israel who claimed to follow God. They were very religious at this time. They went to the temple. They did all the right things. They offered all the right sacrifices. They would go faithfully to the temple. But when they left the temple and they went out into, we might say, the real world, the things in which they trusted, the things in which they believed, the things which really impacted their life, The things which steered them from day to day were not the things of God, but they were the things of the world. They were, for example, wanting to put their trust in a foreign leader named Rezin from Assyria, who in the midst of all kinds of national tragedy and and national turmoil and upheaval within their nation, rather than really resting in God and putting their faith in Him, they were turning to these international leaders, these power brokers in the ancient world, and putting all of their hope in him. Not only that, but in Isaiah chapter 8, he describes how in the midst of their dark times, they would actually go out and consult mediums, and they would consult spiritists, and they would consult people from the occult world. So they were coming to the temple, claiming to believe in God, but the real voices that they were listening to were the voices of the world. So it was just all, it was just all religious speak, going through the motions, doing these certain things, but there was no heart for God at all. Their fears within the world were the things which dominated them. And there was, as Isaiah says, no fear of God. In fact, this is what he says in Isaiah chapter 8. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people who were always saying, I mean, saying, excuse me, not walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread of what they're in dread of. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. End quote. So here he's saying, you have all these people who are going around And all their concern all day long are all these conspiracies, are all these things that are threatening them. 
All their chatter is about all the fears of this world. They fear this, they dread this, they dread that. And going on in Isaiah, he talks about how because of all those things, they're putting their trust in the spiritists, the mediums, the foreign powers. God says, you know what? I am your sanctuary. I'm the stone. The stone on which you will stand, if you might say, or the stone over which you'll stumble. The stone that will become an offense and a rock of stumbling for Israel. For all their talk about God, Israel was always stumbling when it came to trusting God and the practical realities of life. In that sense, they were stumbling over what was right in front of them, which is a sad thing. Because they were convinced that the solution maybe was too simple. Just trust God. <laughs> he's kind of like, a, he's kind of like a, a lucky charm. He's kind of like a, maybe a dead idol. It's something you go and you offer up your offerings, but I mean the real matters of life, you want us to just simply trust Him? It's kind of like, you know, when I can't find my keys, I'm running around, tearing up the house, uh, turning everything over, and um, frantically just wondering, thinking how I'm going to get out of the mess after I get wherever I'm going late. What kind of shortcuts am I going to take? What kind of back roads am I going to take? What am I going to do? And then finally I ask my wife, has she seen the keys? And she says, well, I've got them. I just didn't bother to ask her. This is what God was saying to Israel. I mean, they're frantically tearing everything up. They're frantically trying to find solutions. And then the simple thing was just to ask him. They weren't doing that. Paul, Paul probably quoted this passage because it came in the midst of a prophecy of God's ultimate solution for Israel's problem. A child who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And chapter 7 and chapter 8 of Isaiah is all about this coming child, Emmanuel, who would be God among them so that they would never have to fear, so they would never have to be in dread. They just needed to put their trust in Him. In a similar way, he quotes Isaiah 28, which is a passage that speaks about God's righteous demands. Isaiah 28, verse 14, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, those who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you've said we've made a covenant with death, with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we've made, our, we've made lies our refuge. In falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm the one who has laid a foundation stone in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And whoever believes will not be put into haste. I'll make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. Inhale and sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. So here Israel, they're not literally saying, you know, we're putting our trust in lies. They're not literally saying, hey, we've got a, we got a covenant with death. But the prophet is telling them 
that they had unwittingly done that. They were pursuing God, but they were doing it all by false means. And by doing that, they, their covenant wasn't with God, it was with death. And God was telling them through Isaiah that he was going to make a single demand. A single demand was that they believe. He was going to give them a foundation stone and they were going to have to believe. Everything would be centered on whether or not they believe. And that belief will be tested by their response to this precious cornerstone, which in the time of of Isaiah, it wasn't clear what it was, but by the time you get to Paul, it was crystal clear. The precious cornerstone is Jesus Christ. He is the one who tests whether you believe. You'll know whether or not you have the kind of faith that God is demanding based on your response to Jesus Christ. This is all exactly as the Old Testament has spoken. Israel must believe. They've always had that demand. And in Paul's day, it wasn't just any kind of belief. It wasn't just any kind of faith. It was specifically faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he'll get to eventually down in chapter 10, verse 11, 12, 13, when he begins to articulate very clearly that this stone, this belief that they must have is the belief in Jesus. So this is Paul's explanation of Israel's failure in his own day. Whatever they're seeking of God, they had never pursued it rightly. And because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works, they were missing. Well, this leads to an interjection there in verse 1 of chapter 10, a a prayer for their salvation. Just in the midst of all this, Paul wails out in grief again, just like he did at the beginning of the chapter when he talked about how, how his conscience bears him witness that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Well, here he says in, in chapter 10, verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. Paul's not lost hope. Even though this has always been the the pattern of Israel, even though there's always been only a small believing Israel within larger unbelieving Israel, Paul did not accept that that was going to be always the case. Even though Paul already acknowledged that God was working through sovereign election to choose a minority of Jews to believe in Him, Paul did not let that understanding of God's sovereignty dampen his passion to pray for the salvation of lost Israel. And so he continued to pray for the larger Israel, continued to pray for the entire nation because he hoped and he believed that God would still work among them. In fact, you'll come back to this in chapter 11, that although Israel had missed God so badly for so long, we shouldn't conclude, therefore, that God will never work among them. Just because God is working among the Gentiles, along with a small remnant of Jews, we shouldn't conclude, therefore, that God has given up on all of these unbelieving Jews. In spite of their unbelief, Paul would not accept, he would not conclude that God was now simply going to work through a different people, a new Israel, now found in the Gentiles, as it were. No, he still prayed. 
He still prayed that God would work among unbelieving Israel, that they, while they may have been broken off from God's plan of salvation for the time being, that God would graft them back into the plan and so complete his work. And so he prays. His heart's desire is for them. Well, after that interjection, he returns to his main point, final point really for today, which is the pursuit that prevents their salvation. This is his final, if you will, um, piece in the dissecting of Israel's unbelief, the pursuit that prevents their salvation. He says, I, I bear them witness that they have this zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is his main description of their problem. For all their zeal, for all their seeking, for all their interest in God, it was based on the wrong knowledge. And he demolishes that romantic ideal in modern day society that what God is really looking for more than anything else is just sincerity. Just the honest seeker. Just the heartfelt desire. If you have the right kind of sincerity, then you will find God. That's what the world wants to tell you. Just follow your heart, they would tell you. Well, Paul's warning, well, your heart can be deceived. This is coming from a man who could give testimony of zeal. He had been brought up a Jew, extremely zealous. He says in Philippians 3 that... As it pertains to the law, he was blameless. He was fastidious. He was zealous. And not only that, he went beyond just keeping the law. He was a persecutor of the church. He was so zealous. He was so loyal to his religion, his way of life. He actually went out and attacked those who he felt like threatened it. The problem with Israel, you see, wasn't apathy. They had zeal. The problem was miscalculation. Aiming at the wrong thing. Pursuing it the wrong way. And Paul summarizes what this lack of knowledge came down to in verse 3. First of all, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They had a misconception of the righteousness of God. They didn't, if you were to ask them, explain to me the righteousness of God. They would have explained it the wrong way. They misunderstood it. They couldn't articulate what God's righteousness was really like, even though it had been revealed to them. They thought about it all wrong. They thought that God had a standard of righteousness that would allow for their mistakes, that would allow for their shortcomings. They thought that God had a standard of righteousness that would overlook all of their shortcomings in light of all their good efforts and so that when they, when they did make a mistake that somehow they would make up for it by doing a lot of good things for God. That's the way they thought about God's righteousness. But Paul says they were just ignorant. Because you know what God's righteousness is? He says it to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, who will by no means clear the guilty but visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the fourth generation that's a high standard or he says in Habakkuk you are of purer eyes 
than to see evil and you cannot look upon wrong. God, you want to know about God's righteousness? He can't even look at what's wrong. We might feel some level of smugness in ourselves. We might look at what other people are doing, but as long as we're not participating in it, we're good. The scripture says God can't even look at it. He can't have it in his presence. He can't have people in his presence who are tainted by wrong. You want to know about God's righteousness? Isaiah tells us that in comparison to God, all your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That means even your best deed on your best day is still like a soiled cloth in the eyes of God, which is just another way to say even that is disgusting to God. Even that is still putrid to God. Or even in the words of Jesus, full of grace and truth, what does he say? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect. This is the right understanding of God's righteousness. Is that the only thing He's going to accept is perfection. And all your best efforts are not going to make it because they're stained. They're stained and they're filthy by your own corrupt life. Your own corrupt motives. Your own corrupt pride. Israel somehow thought that God had a standard of righteousness that he was going to relax for them, that he would be okay with just a little bit of sin. That as long as they had enough good deeds to make up for it, that God was just going to let it slide. And so, the second thing they didn't understand, which Paul springs out, the second part of their ignorance is they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. They were seeking to establish their own. They were seeking to do enough good things that they thought would please God. And then thirdly, because of all this, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. They didn't allow their life to be examined, to be weighed, to be, to be exposed by the righteousness of God. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. Well, let me tell you this morning, if you do that, If you come to God and you use His calculations, if you use His terms, if you use His righteousness as your way to calculate how to get to God, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find utter despair. You're going to find that there's nothing that you can do. That there's no way that you could ever do enough to please God. And you're going to find yourself the same place that So many others have been. You're going to find yourself at the place of Isaiah when he's standing in the presence of God and he's saying, woe to me. I am demolished. I am undone. You'll find yourself with nothing to say because there is nothing to say except just to cast yourself on the mercy of God which is exactly where he wants you to be. In fact, Jesus told a parable about a man who came to the synagogue and he 
was so ashamed of himself, he just sat in the back of the synagogue beating his chest and just saying over and over and over and over again, God be merciful to me, the sinner. God be merciful to me, the sinner. God be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says that man went home that day and he was righteous. He went home that day and he was justified. He finally submitted himself to the righteousness of God. And he claimed what he could only have by faith, what was only available by faith, to simply believe that God forgives sinners and that there's nothing they could do on their own. See, the demise of a seeker is thinking that they have something to offer to God. The demise of Israel, the demise of seekers today is thinking that somehow, some way, they do enough that somehow God's going to take notice. Well, the only thing he notices is your ruined and blemished life. The only thing he receives is your call of faith. This is the good news that Paul eventually says as you move all the way down through the chapter. The good news is the word is near. It's in your mouth and in your heart, he says. So that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's that simple. And we want to invite you to do that. We're going to close with a prayer and a song here in a moment. When we do, I'm available up here. Our other elders are around you know them please feel free approach us we'd love to let you know what God's righteousness is so that as you pursue him you'll find him please stand together and let's bow together in a word of prayer father we're grateful for this we're grateful to hear the truth it has come to us so clearly And Father, because it's come clearly, there is accountability on our part that we respond and believe. Lord, we're grateful that you've made known to us the gospel. We're grateful that we can surrender all of our efforts and all of our attempts as utter failures before the throne of your grace. We're grateful to be reminded again of what your demand is. It is simply belief in our Savior. And we pray for any who are here today who have put in so much effort maybe in seeking after salvation, but they've never come in the right way. We pray for them, Lord, that they would understand the gospel, that they would surrender in believing. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.